0: Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. We believe all survivors should have access to justice and resources to help them heal from the trauma of sexual abuse. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. Join us as we talk with survivors and various community members who are taking action to normalize the conversation around sexual abuse in the pursuit of justice and healing. This is Support for Survivors.
1: Hello, everyone. This is your host, C. Terrell. Welcome to Support for Survivors. Today, we are honored to welcome Rabbi Evremi Zippel to our show. Rabbi Zippel, a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, is a rabbi along with his father, Rabbi Benny Zippel, at Chabad Lubavitch of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah. An activist, advocate, and public speaker determined to combat the epidemic of childhood sexual abuse, the rabbi is here today to share with us what he has learned on his journey as a survivor. Welcome, Rabbi. We are so happy to have you today.
0: Good morning. Thank you for having me, Jonas. I appreciate it.
1: Of course. And I know that you're coming into town next week. We were just kind of discussing the weather a little bit. So I hope you're bundled up and ready to make the trip to Indianapolis. I, I think
0: you guys can't really beat Salt Lake City right now. It was 21 yesterday. And oh, like it well, was so there's ice everywhere. So I think we'll be in good company.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, I know that everyone around here is excited to have you at your different speaking engagements. So let's start off with talking a little bit about your family backgrounds. I think it's important. As I mentioned in the Introduction, your father is also a rabbi. Your mother is a Shalucha at the Chabad Lubavitch of Utah. And as the way I understand it, you all were originally from New York, but moved to Utah when you were just a baby as an emissary family.
0: That's that's absolutely correct. And I think whenever you try to understand childhood sexual abuse in any sort of environment, context, and understanding the environment in which it happens is always so, so crucial. And so for me, my parents made the decision to serve a, a lifetime appointment to open a Chabad uh, branch here in Salt Lake City. They moved here in 1992. I was, as you mentioned, just a couple months old. And for us, that meant it was going to be a lifetime in that environment for the entire family. So dad is a rabbi, mom is as you mentioned the, you know, the, the a communal leader in her own right. And we all kind of grew up in an environment in which and and I don't say this with any sort of resentment, but the reality is the lines between personal and professional, you know, aren't even there to be blurred. It really is kind of a, a very all-encompassing sort of environment. We were the rabbi's family. We grew up mm-hmm. in the rabbi's house and and that comes with, you know, a whole bunch of stuff to it and so that was you know that was the house that we were raised in. i'm the oldest of six um we were bunched pretty close together at the top and that was that was our lifestyle it was you know it was i think the the key point as it pertains to the story moving forward uh we were homeschooled there was no jewish day school in salt lake city back in the day as my siblings and i like to joke in in 2022 following covid the term homeschool has a number of different interpretations (laughs) quite actually homeschool there was a bedroom On the main floor that was converted into a classroom and so that was the life that we knew you know we we didn't know anything else or anything different to be you know somehow unhappy with it it was it was life as we knew it and we we went with it
1: let's talk a little bit about what chabad is or means because i think that just as you said context is very important when we talk about these issues so will you explain to the listeners what exactly chabad is and what the lifestyle is like
0: absolutely so chabad is the world's largest jewish outreach movement so what that means let's say in the context of salt lake city is that there's a decision to provide outreach and enrichment for the community in salt lake city so a young couple you know right at the beginning of their careers is sent out to salt lake city to be completely independent and self-sufficient so you know it's not like there's a communal organization that is asking for them to come out or is requesting them or frankly is willing to pay them you kind of come out there and you fend for yourself and you you part of the term but you eat what you kill it's it, it is kind of the wild in that sense and you, you try to provide for your community and, and being in the outreach model, it's, it's there's no membership. You know, there's a lot of going out there and bringing Judaism to people who otherwise wouldn't have it as part of their lives. It's incredibly enriching. It's something which I grew up in as a child and wanted one day to take on for myself. And, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to now work for Chabad here in Salt Lake City and, and continue that is family heritage, as it were. And um, there's 5,200 of us now around the country, Chabad's in all 50 states across wow. the United States and 115 countries globally. And uh, it's, it's it's a force for good. It's people who are picking up and leaving larger communities like New York and moving to communities that, you know, where, where the Jewish community could use a boost and, and, and use a shot in the arm and providing that and, and, and dedicating one's life to, to that sort of commitment.
1: That's beautiful. And as part of the, you know, you say the rabbi's family and as a part of the Chabad community, I think you've described your upbringing as very happy, but it was very sheltered
0: it was very sheltered it was, i would say it was pretty insular i know you know I, I think a lot of people think of observant jews and they think about the way they've seen that depicted you know, whether it's in you know in, in in media or online obviously it's not that you know we were the only observant jewish family for about you know 600 miles in any direction living in salt lake city that being said In our household, although we didn't live in an insular community per se, but in our household there was a certain amount of protection, there was a certain amount of sheltering, as I think you put it very, very well, Uh, whether that pertains to content that we absorb, whether that pertains to ideas that were shared in the house. And I think this is the sort of conversation that a lot of people have uh, being outside the community, having kind of left that behind that no longer being part of their lifestyle and they almost, you know, speak of it or look at it in somewhat of a resentful fashion. I, I love it. I raised my kids in the same sort of environment and granted the world is different in, in the generation in which I raised my kids, you know, versus the one in which I was raised, but adhering to a lot of those ideals and and holding a lot of those things dear is still something which is extremely important to me and my family.
1: And I know that I think I read in one of the articles about your journey, that as part of the way you were raised in the the way that the community is, it's really sex and sexuality are just kind of off the table taboo topics, except for one exception, like one massive exception, which is sex before marriage is wrong, it is sinful, and it's bad. Is that was that an accurate? Yeah, and
0: I would kind of I would kind of expound on that. And I think that because we don't do premarital sex. I, I think that on a communal level, there's just kind of a reality baked in that any sort of sexual contact, any sort of sexuality, uh, any sort of just, you know, crossing that boundary between genders is, is not part of our lifestyle. Yeah, and, and I, and I, I tell it to people that this we don't have boyfriends and girlfriends. our schools are separated by gender usually once we, once we get to about fourth or fifth grade. And again we don't we don't see a problem with that and I don't think there is an issue with that uh, and, and so for us you know the, the appeal of sexuality and the appeal of dating and the appeal of engaging in those sorts of behaviors are just not part of our lifestyle. It's not something which we're challenged with. it's not something which we see as a lack and life just moves on as a result of that, I think one of the unfortunate byproducts of that reality is that because there is such a taboo perspective on sex and sexuality, sadly, I'd say the greatest casualty of that perspective is the thinking around sexual abuse. Uh, because you know if, if we're not thinking about sex and we're not talking about sex and it's not a reality in our lives in any way shape or form then sexual abuse that follows also doesn't exist in our communities and i have to say you know i certainly didn't feel this way as a kid as, as a kid i didn't really know what sexual abuse was but up until being a young adult i firmly believe that sexual abuse is like a real thing and it's a problem and it happens out there, right? It happens in other communities. It happens in the Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. It happens in you know these really kind of isolated pockets of society. And it just doesn't just doesn't happen here. It's just not our problem. And and I think that's a byproduct of that thinking.
1: I mean, that makes sense. I think it's a natural progression from there. And we'll get into this a little bit more later. What the the importance of educating your children is. But I did a speak engagement at an interfaith safety summit recently and certainly first of all what you said is that it happens everywhere anywhere there are kids there's always going to be a danger of something like this happening especially in youth serving organizations But I, and we'll talk about this again a little bit later, but I know that there is one point where you and your wife agree that, you know, this is the the environment you want to raise your kids and you think it's the right environment, but there's also room within that to make sure your children are educated about consent and and your body, because that's a different thing. A woman I spoke with at that, that event is amazing. She's been on the podcast. Her name is Joelle Castix. And she said, she spends a lot of time educating clergy members about the fact that you're, I'm not asking you to talk to your kids about sex. I'm asking you to talk to your kids about their bodies and what's okay and what's not okay. Because as we'll get into in a little bit, you know, especially for you, I think you didn't even know it was abuse because you thought abuse looked a certain way and that's not what this looked like.
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, th- there's a sentence that I'm gonna spit out over here that I think a lot of people get nervous when, whenever you say this. Times are changing. Times have changed now. When you live in a community that lives by the values of upholding traditions and ideals that are thousands of years old, I think when you come out with that with that sentence, a lot of people a lot of people will hesitate. They'll be like, "Whoa, you know, we don't we don't do changing realities in our community. We don't." True, fair enough. And we do live our lives by ideals that are thousands of years old, but we live in societies that are changing. For the longest time, we did think that sexual abuse was like a byproduct of sexuality, and, and therefore it was an issue that we didn't struggle with if we didn't engage in premarital sex. And we've come to learn that that's not remotely true. It's, it's not remotely true. And, and you know, I, I think there was also, there still is really a, an idea that we're up against that this is the sort of thing that is done by monsters. Like, you know, the, the sort of people that harm children are evil scum monsters. And we don't have monsters, you know, we're we're a community full of good people, full of, you know, people who are dedicated to a life of service. And like, you know, how could we insinuate that such evil lives in our community? And and to that end, I would make the point, I think that the demonization around this conversation does not serve communities very well, Mm. because it really pushes people back into corners. And if we go to interfaith groups and be like, you know, you guys need to have a certain awareness around child safety, What people are hearing is, you folks, you're protecting monsters. You are also monsters. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, that's not fair. And the truth is that I think by having a healthy perspective around this issue and understanding how commonplace it is and and how non-monstrous it is. And and don't get me wrong. I think the people that do this are, you know, they need help. They they need real help. And I believe we should report. And I believe in all of that. And also, I believe that the really intense polarizing conversations around this topic don't do a lot of people a lot of
1: good. Mm. Completely agree because just like you said, people envision it in a certain way that it is some monster, but that's not what the person looks like most of the time. Again, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but you know, these people are grooming everyone around them, not just the child. And so that's why they're trusted. It's not, you know, it's easy to see the creepy guy hiding in the bushes at the playground as a threat. Okay, that's weird. But, you know, not your nanny. Who would think that? And so let's let's go ahead and get into that a little bit. You know, you as a kid, by all accounts, I can see, were a pretty, just a very bright kid, a very good kid. You were reading both English and Hebrew by age four. You were, you know, referred to as assistant rabbi to your dad with helping congregants doing things. You know, great kid, homeschooled by mom. And at some point in time, you know, your parents did have a growing family. And so they decided to bring uh this nanny on when you were about eight years old. Is that right?
0: Seven. But yeah, that's, that's seven. Right around, okay. Around that era.
1: All right. And it sounds like she did a very good job of grooming everyone for about a year. She seemed super reliable. And I'm assuming at the time, you know, to her, your parents, she seemed kind of like a godsend, like, a, oh, this person's wonderful. She's here. She, we can trust her with our children. She's helping us. And then once she kind of established that safety, she abused you.
0: So, all correct, and I want to kind of jump to the end of the story for a moment to, to kind of put, you know, really validate some of the points you made there, nasty. When I came forward and when our family had to grapple with what had happened to me as a kid, and, and by extension, the reality that all of my siblings were exposed to and were part of, I had an incredible conversation with my mental health professional. And he said, there's going to be a kind of a, an instinct or an urge to engage in some revisionist history and to go to a place of, she was always creepy. There were always red flags. No one really liked her. You know, gosh, we should have seen this coming. And he said, and, and based on what I had told him for two years at that point, he says, and I know that's not true because you've told me that's not true. And I think that if your family's gonna sit down and be honest with themselves, they're going to acknowledge that is just not true. She was loved by your family. And by all accounts, she loved your family and they loved her back. And that is a complex pill to swallow. And and for me, I had to live in that space of cognitive dissonance for years because here's a person that seems to be a really good person that, you know, we consider to be like family, actually family, who is doing something so terribly wrong. What do I do with that? How do I keep all of those balls in the air at the same time? Because this makes no sense. As humans, we prefer life to be simple. We prefer people to fit into their boxes. There's good people, there's bad people, the good people do good things, bad people do bad things. And life just rumbles on from that point. And to your point, that's exactly what she did. She ingratiated herself, she became part of the family. And, you know, exactly at what point she saw that as kind of a conniving part of a larger structure, I don't know, and I won't know. But she took advantage of exactly that reality. I think she created a dynamic and saw the space to step right into it.
1: It's such an important point you make. I think that most everyone suffers from that logical fallacy that if this, then not that. So if she is all of these other things, maybe a great nanny, maybe a valued member of the family, even then she can't have done these things. And that's simply not true. Both things can be true simultaneously. And you're so right. That's such a difficult concept for all of us to wrap our minds around. And, you know, just as a our point that we were talking about earlier. She didn't look like what a child molester looks like. Again, we there's so many stigmas surrounding this but you know she was in her 40s and she was a female and you were a boy and so people she was,
0: she, I would add she was a happily married mother of three oh like gosh. right
1: like that's not that, that that can't be true right like that, there's no way she would do that and the, the the unfortunate reality and truth is that that happens all the time and you know sexual abuse con- continues to be, one of the most underreported, underrecognized and undertreated crimes that there are. But it's especially true for little boys, even that it is for little girls. And I think our culture plays a big role in that in terms of boy girl. And I think, you know, it, to some extent, I'm sure that your culture played some role in that just because it was a taboo topic and you didn't know and you weren't educated as to what abuse looked like. I think I read somewhere that you thought it can't be abuse because she's not, you know, quote unquote, forcing me to do it. There's no coercion. So this has to be sexual. So it's all my fault.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I, I really like how you talked about kind of the cultural dynamics. I think we all have the ability as we grow up to look back on, on various realities that we were part of as kids or as young people and realize the role that it played. And, and I've, you know, reflected quite a bit. As a child, I consider, you know, my my generation is the 9-11 generation. We, we, we've gotten a whole bunch of labels, but locally here in Salt Lake City, as a child, I was part of the Elizabeth Smart generation. And so when I was 10 years old, Elizabeth Smart, a couple of years older than me, who lived five minutes from my house, was taken from her bed in the middle of the night. Right. And like, you know, for, for us as kids, this is what we've been telling our moms and dads that we've been having nightmares about. And they told us to go back to sleep because it doesn't happen. No one comes into your bedroom in the middle of the night and takes the boys and girls out of their bed. It just doesn't happen. So stop and go back to bed. And then it happened in my backyard. Someone went into a little girl's room in the middle of the night and took her out of bed. So, you know, we didn't sleep for weeks after after that had happened. And, you know, Elizabeth Smart's face is everywhere, in town, it's on every lamppost, it's in every window of every store. And nine months later, she comes back. Miraculously, she, you know, they find her walking on on State Street in Sandy. And for as much as her face had been drilled into our lives for, for those months, all of a sudden, a new face dominates the scene. And that is the face of her captor of Brian David Mitchell. And and his face is just, you know, leading off the the news every night. And it's the, the cover of the paper every single day for years, this trial would go on for 11 years, you know, that face just became part of a reality forever. And as I think about it, her return, in a certain sense, had more of a long term effect on society than her than her kidnapping, because it became ingrained in our subconscious. It became part of our psyche. When we would see that face of Ryan David Mitchell, you know, the homeless, unkempt, long straggly beard. Mm-hmm. you know, eyes mm-hmm. that just belie a mental illness. The idea was that is the sort of person that does this. You want to know who harms kids? That guy. That guy is a harmer of children. And if you want to keep your children safe from harm, keep them away from people who look like him. If you see someone who looks like him, he's out there to harm kids, keep them far away from him. And and I, whilst this whole dynamic is going on, am being harmed by a loving, caring, happily married mother of three, wasn't homeless, you no, know, came every morning with a face of makeup. And I and I think that when you think about you know how society dictates certain realities to you and your psyche, I think that's a big part of that. I think it's uh, a very big part of that in that sense.
1: Well, that's such a such an important point because where we glean our information, even when we don't know it and how we conceptualize things is what we see and what we hear. And so it just happens. You don't know how that happens. It just does, or we think it just does, but this is how it happens. That's exactly right. And when we're not putting the word out there, that's like, sure, that, you know, that's something awful, very unlikely to happen, could happen, obviously did happen to Elizabeth Smart. And she is my goodness, what a hero and a beautiful person, but the reality is over 90% of child abusers are someone that the child knows and trusts and maybe even loves because that's how they gain access to the children in the first place. And so I know for you, you said that, you know, your mom homeschooled you and your siblings and then your nanny would come and help mom out as well. And so the abuse was occurring in your home, often while your mom was home and your siblings were around, well, right? I
0: mean, so all the time when my siblings were around and I'd say 90 90- Five percent of the time when mom was just upstairs which which again right you know again feeds into that okay so so this can't be that right you know we tell our kids don't talk to strangers on the playground because playgrounds are places that are right for sexual abuse but not not homes right not not our backyards and again you know it really feeds into just how that information is processed and and, and absorbed because i think that's a great example of where that could not be further from the truth
1: That's why we do what we do, right? That's why we're trying to educate everyone and get the message out there that this is actually what it looks like. This is what you need to, these are the things you need to know in order to protect your children. And I want to talk a little bit about Dissociation. I I read something that you said during the abuse that you would fixate your eyes on the nasty wallpaper and the bathroom as if you could disappear by focusing your gaze on one spot, and you likened it to an out of body experience. A lot of survivors liken it to switching off as a protective mechanism to just get through it.
0: I think that what survivors of of every stripe and color have in common is an inability to live in a safe fashion in our body. Our, our body is holding on to so much pain and so much trauma and so much discomfort. Mm. We, we don't know what to do with it. We just don't know what to do with it. Shortly after I, my story came out, I had a conversation with a survivor who was struggling with an eating disorder. And the way she put it to me was, it was like earth shattering. You know, you know, the, just the, the straight line between people who suffer Through those sorts of traumas and just in a lack of familiarity in our body, a lack of comfort, a lack of safety in our body, and on the most basic level, a profoundly unhealthy relationship with the container. You know, Mm -hmm. you hold on to so much toxicity, you, you, my body, and you are a reminder of so much negativity that has happened in my life. And I detest you, I I, Mm. I find you gross. And, you know, I, I, you know, as, as we come to understand that more and more, and I think we see the statistics really bearing that out as it pertains to eating disorders, as it pertains to self harm, as it pertains to a general feeling of, I don't know you, I don't want to know you, I want to have nothing to do with you. And I'm certainly not going to be someone who's committed to the bettering of your cause. I speak to survivors all the time who, even if it's not something as drastic as an eating disorder, but you know they'll be overweight, you know, they'll struggle to exercise, they'll struggle to have a healthy relationship with themselves, with their body, because it is a container of so much grief and sadness and and misfortune. And I think we all go through that. I think for survivors who have have had to be in those situations, we've all been there where we've wanted to be anywhere but there in that moment. And we have done what we can to, to leave that moment in any way, shape or form.
1: I have talked to so many survivors who have that same feeling. And of course, as you said, it manifests in different ways as time goes on, but I don't think they've ever heard anyone articulate it so well before and establishing that link in your mind and understanding that some of those problems come back to the way you feel about your body and why you feel about your body comes back to the abuse. And that isn't an easy connection to make. And it takes a lot of time for a lot of people
0: it takes a lot of time for a lot of people. And, you know, and and I think we all spend a lifetime, you know, drawing those lines and and making those connections and figuring out how we go from that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a lifelong journey. That's for sure. I want to touch briefly on grooming. I think that, you know, we already talked a little bit about how your abuser groomed, you know, your parents and your family and everyone around you, because that's part of it. But she also groomed you. And I think that, you know, this is me. This is my opinion. So forgive me for that. But I I think that she probably was able to target you. She probably used the fact that she knew that you didn't know what abuse was and zeroed in on you because of that. And then she told you, you know, that you were special and that it was because you're so mature and that she was just trying to help you. And someday, you know, she was going to help make you into a better husband for what she was doing to you.
0: So a number of years ago, we had an I.T. guy here who works for the synagogue, and he sent me an email that he was performing a vulnerability assessment on our computers. And I heard those words and I decided it's words to live by because in my mind, grooming is a vulnerability assessment. Grooming when a predator is in a situation and they want to figure out how much space they have in that situation that is when they'll engage in behaviors of grooming. And they will assess the situation to determine how much vulnerability is present in that situation. No predator, in my opinion, in the history of the world has you know woken up one morning, grabbed a kid and, and just abused them point blank and, and hope that it would go unnoticed. There is a vulnerability assessment there that, mm. that assesses, can this kid keep a secret for me? You know, where where can I isolate? this child and where can how can i cut them off from their natural presences of support in their lives what does that look like so you know, a, you know a lot of times and again i think we talk about how reality moves us away from conventional thinking so we think conventional thinking is grooming means you know scary people giving out lollipops on on the playground <laughs> and, and again more times than not, it's got nothing to do with that grooming is about determining the status of a situation can this child keep a secret can this child be trusted to hold on to information that they will not naturally run off and tell their parents or their you know the, the adults the safe adults in their life about and so in that sense i was absolutely groomed there was a process where my abuser determined my ability to keep secrets and to protect information and to not run off and tell anybody and i suppose that I, in a certain warped sense, I passed that test. And, you know, after that process, that's when the real trouble begins, because there's there's that determination that there are vulnerabilities there that can be exploited. And that ultimately is all that it is.
1: Gosh, that's so true. That is, I am going to credit you for that. But I'm definitely going to use that in the future. That's a vulnerability assessment, because it absolutely is. They They make that assessment, they zero in on what those vulnerabilities are, and then they make that call whether or not they think that they can get away with it here. And, you know, and she can get away with it for a long time. You know, the abuse went on for, you know, periodically for 10 years. And I know that you've said that you felt relief after she was gone, to some extent, because of the self-blame and shame that had, you know, erupted within you. And that is such an important thing to talk about in terms of childhood sexual abuse, because all All survivors of childhood sexual abuse have that. All have self-blame, all have shame. And for you, I know that you've said that you knew that it was wrong, but you thought that you were the terrible sinner and that you were to blame and that you didn't understand even that this was abuse and she was an adult and she was to blame.
0: I mean, I think it goes back to some of the points we talked about earlier. Kids see the world in an extremely simple lens. And so I think the process is this, there's something bad going on And there are two people involved in that dynamic and one of them is not a bad person for sure not a bad person as we understand bad people to be so if there's a bad thing going on and there is a non-bad person that is involved in in, in some of these actions the badness pardon the use of a word that's not really a word but you know i think from a child's perspective the badness of the situation needs to lay with somebody and it's not going to lay with her so i guess i got to take it i guess in that sense i need to absorb a lot of that that blame and shame and you internalize that and it grows and it metastasizes and it gets worse and worse and worse progressively. And, you know, a lot of it harkens back to the fact that you don't have vocabulary or language or tools to process or understand what to do with that. You you don't just don't know what to do with it. And so that was absolutely my experience in the sense that there was just a lot of guilt that was that, that needed to be dished out And there was one person that I was just not able to hand off that guilt to because they weren't a a guilty person. They weren't someone who was deserving of that guilt. And so I, I took it all for myself.
1: It's just it's heartbreaking. And there's one thing in particular that I read that you said in an interview once. It was like you were living a psychological double life. On the one hand, you were this nerdy kid, you're doing good in school, you're reading the Torah with your dad, you're playing sports, you know, you love Harry Potter, you're happy. And at the same time, you're completely tormented by shame. I read that you would leave that bathroom after these incidents of abuse. And you would recite the hebrew confessional prayer because you thought you were such a terrible sinner and that what you were doing was so wrong and you know so you've already got that shame and then there's another layer added to it that i think is hard for a lot of people to talk about is that there's even more shame because during some of these experiences, there is a level of sexual pleasure from it. And so then that I think that just adds to, it's my fault, obviously, uh, this, this part feels good. And so that's hard for a lot of people to talk about. And so I very much appreciate your honesty about it. And I think it's something that, that has to be talked about so that other survivors know that they're not alone, that that is a normal reaction and it still doesn't mean it's your fault. You
0: know, for me, some of the most intense conversations that I'll have with people. People will be like, you know, I got to be honest with you. I came across your story. It doesn't make any sense to me. It just doesn't make any sense to me. How, how does that happen? How does a teenage boy get sexually abused? And, and I'll share with people, be like, you know, that inability to process that, you, that you're sitting in right now and you have the the comfort and the luxury to sit back on your couch and kind of Monday morning quarterback this, I lived through that. And that inability to to put things in the appropriate box is was exactly, you know, what I had to struggle with every single day. And but for me, I, I did. I couldn't Monday morning quarterback. It. it was my life. It was everything that I was dealing with on a regular basis. and So it is grossly misunderstood. And it doesn't make sense to a lot of people and it makes sense to a lot of people.
1: It's that's infuriating to you. You're like, oh, well, good for you, miss 45 year old who has life experiences and knowledge to be able to sit here and cast judgment on that. Because I was eight. I was eight years old when that happens or or even 15. It doesn't matter either way. You know, that is something, you know, I get fired up about that. I get I get angry because as we i know i keep beating this dead horse but there's just so much misconception and misunderstanding surrounding the issue and then because of that people will say things that are you know at best offensive and sometimes re-traumatizing
0: and you you know it comes with the territory on a certain certain level i think and and that's unfortunate but it is you know what you sign up for on a certain sense if you're going to go down this road and I think that after enough time, you come to almost wear it with pride. you know, I, I apologize if my experiences don't fit into your box into your perspective of of the world. They are legitimate, they are mine, they are valid and you know that's my burden to carry and and I feel like all each of those encounters is a learning opportunity and to really educate.
1: Well, it's incredibly courageous and important because that's the only way to shift the culture and make people understand. I think we do we are shifting the culture and I think the younger generation is much better about it but it does still take time. You know, I'm kind of segueing from that shame and self-blame that you harbored within you. You know, at the time you didn't tell anyone, you know, I I think you've said that your greatest fear is that your parents would find out because you had absolutely no idea what would happen. You are living with this, you know, to you, what you think is is reality that, you know, you're, you're going to be in big trouble. And so you kept it to yourself.
0: I would add, you know, not only did I not tell anybody about it, but I, spent considerable efforts to make sure that nobody would would absolutely find out about it i I think it's an unspoken and and again misunderstood reality as it pertains to this topic of why survivors keep it secret and you know are they being threatened or you know are they being harmed if they're going to tell i think a lot of survivors keep it quiet out of a very misguided sense of self-preservation you know i need to keep this quiet because what will it do to me forget what will do to the other person i could care less about the other person what will it do to me? That, that's who I'm most concerned about. Mm-hmm. And, and that was absolutely my reality in the sense that I, I, I needed to keep it quiet because I didn't know what would happen if it got out. And, and I was profoundly concerned about what would happen if it got out. And so strictly out of a sense of self-preservation, not trying to carry water for anybody else, I, I kept it quiet so that I would remain safe. That was the beginning, middle, and end of that motivation.
1: It's, you know, it is, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking to look back on. And I've heard this, you know, from so many people, because so many people feel the same exact way. And they're, you know, and that that's a big part of it. And unfortunately, it's a valid fear, because you've already been through what you've been through. And then a lot of kids aren't believed. And when that happens, you know, intensifies and heightens the shame and the self-loathing, I think, and, and then that exacerbated. And so I know at some point in time, things did change for you, but it took, you know, several years at age 20, you know, you were, I think you were kind of, uh, you were convalescing from a broken leg and you were just kind of bored and decided to watch this law and order SVU kind of binge. And you, you saw one episode in particular that made your heart stop.
0: So I had knee surgery in the spring of 2012, and I was confined to a bed for a couple of weeks, which is not, you know, I'm a pretty active person and being on my back for that long was not a a very welcome proposition. And so I began to binge as we all do, as we've all done. And I had always loved SVU. And there's this episode about a young man who's profoundly troubled. And there's this conversation and there's this disclosure where, you know, he's had this troubled childhood and his mom tells the detectives about the things that his nanny made him do to her. And the detectives are like, well, you know, that all makes perfect sense. Your child has been through sexual violence. All of his behaviors kind of all fit in the box. And I remember watching it and I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. What? You know, I I, I get that it's a fictional show, but like they wouldn't like make up lies on the show it it sounds like they're suggesting that what this young man went through is textbook sexual abuse and that doesn't make sense to me on a number of levels and so I don't know what to do with that so I did nothing with it I just kind of let it sit there for a while
1: so like the seed was kind of planted but
0: I'd say the seed was planted is a great example and you know I think that folks who plant seeds for a living will tell you that not every seed that gets planted turns into something, you know, and, and there's a lot of factors that go into different seeds turning into something larger than a seed. And so I think that seed was planted and it sat there for a while. And and from time to time it would call for reflection and introspection. Mm-hmm. Is that is that accurate? And I didn't do anything with it. I let it sit for a while and I let it kind of gather dust and and, mm-hmm. and would wait for its time when it would, you know, come forward.
1: It's, it's such it's, the journey is just so different for everyone. And it takes, you know, you have to do it on your own timeline. And I think for you, Maybe it sped things up a little bit. It was only a couple of years later, you know, you ordained a rabbi, you get married, you become a father. And I think that you said at some level, and I don't know if it was conscious or subconscious that you thought when I get married, you know, it's going to be like the cure, like I'm going to be cured. Everything is going to be fine. Like that's when I'm really going to be able to move on. But really the opposite ended up happening. And it just fueled all of those feelings of guilt and shame and confusion that were a big part of your psyche.
0: I think like many survivors and like many people who who struggle in life, I, you know, cast all my hopes and dreams on outside circumstances, having the ability to change an internal reality. And so, you know, something was going to happen that I did not need to necessarily do the intense internal work on that would change everything, becoming an ordained rabbi moving out to serve a community marriage fatherhood and that's not necessarily in chronological order but some you know the the circumstances would change and then everything would be all better and and that would just put an end to all of the internal misery and as each one of those mile markers were passed and things didn't change i think that it only made the torment worse because there was less to look forward to you know what if i get to that that'll change well i did and it didn't. So, okay. So the next one, when it, when that happens, that'll be a huge game changer. Well, that happened and it wasn't. And and on and on it goes. And, and I think it comes to a point where you run out of external yeah. circumstantial changes. And at some point you're like, okay, yeah, I, I suppose nothing outside me is going to change the reality without my doing the work on my own. And I don't, I don't even want to entertain what that looks like.
1: Uh, gosh, I guess I, you get to a point where that's got to be, that's got to be a pretty low point. And it sounds like it must have been a low point for you because you started, you know, exhibiting external behaviors that made your wife and your parents very worried about you to the point where they were like, I think you should see someone, which is, you know, a pretty big thing within your culture, because that isn't something that is necessarily normal or common for um, people to seek outside help with a mental health professional. Is that fair?
0: Absolutely. You know, it's it's not, it's not what we do in our in our environment it's not what we do in our culture and and, and to me frankly it seemed ludicrous who, who does that what what good is there in that you're going to go and talk to somebody what do you hope to accomplish what do mm-hmm. you know, achieve through that sort of conversation and you know to me internal issues were best dealt with by cutting off oxygen you know if if no attention is paid to it it will cease to exist if we don't believe it's real it won't be real and I think that that's kind of a societal attitude, definitely mm. communal attitude on some level. And I try to apply it to that and see what it would do for me, and <laughs> it didn't do much.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, I know you finally got to that point. I think in 2016, very resistant, but you did go, and it was it was the first time you ever said aloud, "I think I was sexually abused," and you when you said that to your therapist.
0: And you, you know, you got that exactly right. And if you think about just the terminology and those words, you know, I to me, it was still so far-fetched. And, and to me, it was, you know, kind of sharing this strange, bizarre thought process with a doctor, you know, I think that might be the case. I don't know, you know, Shanessa, you're an attorney. I'm sure, you know, people, folks come to you all the time with their <laughs> hypotheticals and like, you know, their musings about life and expect you to set them straight. And to me, it was like, look, look, doc, like I've been entertaining this wild fantasy and do me a favor, put me out of my mystery. <laughs> right? Just tell me like, what are you talking about? That makes no sense. Move on. And he didn't say that. Uh, and you know, what's, I think what's most remarkable to me is he didn't say anything. He, he asked me to continue, he asked me to go down that road and, and, and think about why that might be the case, what led me to that possible hypothetical belief. And, mm-hmm. and I did, and you know, we've been talking ever since in that sense. And so it, it, was, it was a conversation that started from there that, that allowed that reality to really begin setting in and, and to, I think more than anything, entertain the possibility of what that would look like for the rest of my life? What would, if that was the case, what does that mean? What does that translate into?
1: I know you've spoken about how that kind of evolution of understanding and to some extent acceptance happened. I believe, you know, you you start at this point where you're reluctant to even go and like, this isn't going to help me. And then, you know, through help and speaking about with your therapist, you get to the understanding you're like, okay, it was wrong. And then not only was it wrong, it's not my fault. And not only was it wrong and it's not my fault, but this was a crime that was perpetrated on me. And that journey, I think, is painful and difficult. But did you feel any sense of, you know, I don't know, catharsis or peace when you got to that understanding? Or, you know, was it, would you still see that was kind of like the one of the beginning parts of the journey?
0: I think that when you get to that point, there's definitely a cathartic effect, but it is it is fascinating to me thinking about my own story and, and watching others go through it, how resistant we are to arriving at that place. And so a couple months ago, um, my wife's car was broken into. At night, you know, someone jimmyed the lock and, you know, rummaged through the car and there was nothing of value in there and took some CDs or something. And And it was fascinating to me that my wife was so resistant to talking about it. Like, you know, just from a strictly pragmatic perspective like you know maybe we should park the car somewhere else or yeah and it, it was fascinating you know when when we are taken advantage of when we are manipulated when we have something taken from us even completely worthless cds who listens to cds anymore anyway right you know <laughs> but but that that reality is so painful to know that mm. another human being is able to exert that level of control over us and you know i think you take that and you, you multiply that by about a million that that for me was the beginning of the therapeutic process was you know someone took from me someone took advantage of me someone manipulated me someone lied to me it was amazing to what lengths i was willing to go to fight that reality and to to rather accept the blame upon myself than offer space to that possibility to that version of truth that that i had been through that and, and that was a fascinating journey into the human psyche as it were uh and and eventually you get there eventually you do get there and you begin to process that this was done to you you were not part of this this was a crime and and i think that lends itself to a whole another layer of questions
1: it's so interesting you're right and i don't want to go too far into the weeds or off um topic here but it it, it makes you think back to to heck no they, the child didn't say anything because as an adult as a grown man with the knowledge that you have and with you know, the life experience that you have, and you're still so resistant to thinking that someone did that to you, that someone took that from you, because it is such a violation. And I I love that you compared it to, you know, your wife having just, you know, worthless CDs, you know, nothing that even meant like, nostalgically or, or sentimentally of um, any importance. So it wasn't the value of that. It's just when something is taken from you, it is such an intense, feeling. And when someone's taking your innocence from you, my goodness, of course, a child that wouldn't tell something like that. And so I know that, that, you know, that journey is long and it's, you know, sometimes I know it feels like it's one step forward, two steps back. And, you know, it got to a point where you, you know, were able to disclose to your wife, you were able to disclose to your parents, but even at that point, you still weren't ready to publicly acknowledge what had happened. Like you hadn't gotten to that point yet. And um, why don't you talk a little bit about your being inspired by Ali Raisman and the other survivors of Larry Nasser and how that kind of compelled you to the point where you're like, it's time, it's time to step up.
0: So, I mean, I think first and foremost, uh, I will be in Indianapolis in the next couple of days. And I think it is important to note uh, what a fundamental role it is. Indianapolis plays in that entire story. Um, I believe that you know, the initial reports and then the first investigation that was done was done by the Indy Star. You know, I, I've done my homework on the topic enough to know that, and so you know, kudos to Indianapolis. For me, there was a fear and a hesitance of acknowledging that version of my life in a public forum. Um, yeah, I, I do come from an insular religious community, and I was completely resistant to that becoming the defining part of my life in my mind if i publicly associated myself with that that would be what would chart the course of my life forever and ever and ever and i could go on to do great things uh you know accomplish tremendous things and still you know that's what would attach itself to me till the end of time as i'm laboring through that process the world is changing you know this is 2016 2017 into 2018 and People are coming to terms with themselves. People are coming to a place in their lives where they can they can accept themselves for who they are, notwithstanding horrible, traumatic things that they have been through. And it's happening on a public level, and it's happening on in a very widespread level. And specifically, people are acknowledging what's happened to them as children. You talk about uh, the USA Gymnastics story. And, and for me, when I think about USA Gymnastics and, and why it had such a profound impact, and I think it's something which is important for all of us to think about. I, I have always been a sports nut, you know, just kind of who I am, and who I've been from a young age. And what struck me about USA Gymnastics, and I'll contrast that with other stories that have been told over the years. So I remember so clearly when the whole Penn State football story blew up. I was nineteen twenty when when Penn State was happening. And I remember one thing being the calling card of the Penn State story the only people you're reading about the only pictures you're seeing the only perception of reality that matters is about the perpetrators and it's about how bad how evil and how depraved and 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 how how much they took advantage of people and and as you read the, the press around it you read about the survivors, like in the sixth paragraph, like, you know, usually there's going to be like mm-hmm. a little bit there, you know, the young men who were hurt at these Penn state football camps, there were kids from underprivileged, broken homes who were being sodomized in the shower. And you're like, okay, if I can control one part of my destiny, I never want to be lumped into those kids. Cause that sounds like a miserable life to lead.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You fast forward to 2017, 2018 with USA gymnastics and the, the story is about Nasser, but it's not about Nasser. It's about Allie Reisman, and Jamie Dancher and Jordan Weber. And it's about bright, young, beautiful, accomplished young women who who are at peace with themselves. And I'm saying, you know, this happened to me. And for years I ran from that and I'm done with that. I am not running from that anymore. And, you know, I'm, I'm at peace with myself and and I'm a survivor. And if you don't like that, you can take a number because I'm just fine with that being the reality of my life. And so I think for me, the world starting to see Mm -hmm. this sort of issue in that sort of light, that's where things clicked, where being a survivor was not such a lonely experience anymore. and, And I wholeheartedly leaned into that.
1: I think that the difference in reporting between those two high-profile uh, incidents between Sandusky and Nasser is a great example of that sh- cultural shift that we are experiencing, and you know, making survivors more comfortable to come forward and understand that they're not alone. And then that's what you did—you went to the police and you said, "This is what happened." And you know, again, another indicator. I think that we're we're doing better. There are lots of unfortunate and sad stories of people not being treated well by law enforcement, but it does not seem like that was your experience. In fact, I remember um, reading that you had told them, I'm a victim of sexual abuse. And the detective said, first of all, around here, we call people like you survivors. And that I just that made my heart very happy to (laughs) read that.
0: Uh, Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's, it's it's an example of where we, we know about the, the stories that went wonky and I'm grateful that mine didn't and, and I'm grateful for the fact that I've come to know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of others whose cases were handled appropriately. Uh, and I think that as a society we're making tremendous progress in that area as it, as it pertains to trauma-informed investigating and the, as it pertains to learning how to frame questions around this topic in an appropriate fashion and learning how to interview victims and witnesses and and, and, and coming to understand, you know, these sorts of situations. And, and I think just to kind of put it in one very general sense, throughout this entire process, there was one general feeling for me that be it the cops or the prosecutors or anybody in between, although they hadn't gone through similar experiences, I got the feeling that they got me. They understood, mm-hmm. understood me. to the the extent possible. And I don't think you can put a price on that. And I don't think you you can, you can, you know, put into words how valuable that is and how integral that is. You know, if we're really after justice, and if we're really after providing survivors uh, a sense of giving them back some of their wholesomeness and trying to heal some of that brokenness, I think that doing right by them and doing it in the right way is something which cannot be, cannot be emphasized enough.
1: I certainly could not possibly agree more. And they, they did it and they charged her within 48 hours. And, you know, unfortunately, she did not ever accept responsibility for what she did. And in fact, put everyone through a trial. And I want to talk a little bit about that experience and what the trauma of the trial was like, because, you know, the criminal justice process, I've had many survivors tell me was just absolutely horrific. And that Certainly culminates at some point in time during ex- cross-examination when you're having a sit up on the scene and being treated that way and listening to what the defense attorney arguments are. And, you know, I've said it a hundred times and I know, I think you've said it too. I, you know, I know they have a job to do, but the damage that is caused by the things that they say in the way you're treated, I, I would like to hear your perspective on that.
0: I appreciate you putting it that way. Uh, uh, and, and the way I like to think about it is this, I, I'm a rabbi of I, I a community. People in my community at times have legal issues. I have sat on the defense side of a courtroom long before I ever sat on the prosecutor side of a courtroom, and I have gotten calls from people in my congregation at all hours of the day and night. You know, Rabbi, I, hey, I'm I'm at county. Like, you know, do you have an attorney for me? I need help. And I have been privileged to send members of my community to some of the most incredible people who don't hold it against them, but they're defense attorneys. And I have watched them work, and I have walked them approach a delicate and sensitive situation with the sensitivity and respect that that sort of situation demands you know they do have a job to do and i'm grateful to live in a country that provides every one of its citizens certain protections under the constitution and guarantees that they'll have certain rights and i believe that the person who did these things to me should have those rights but you know absolutely there were definitely holes that could have been poked in the police's investigation there were you know there were there were evidentiary arguments that could have been made about this case that that you know could have made the argument to the jury that perhaps it was over trying we we can go down the legal road from today till tomorrow what was most damaging to me is how adversarial the process was and and the defense was not after evidentiary motions, and they weren't after poking holes in the investigative process of the story as as i see it the defense saw this as as really kind of a, a a one-way street either we tear her or either she gets torn down or you get torn down and whoever is left less bloody and more intact at the end of this will be deemed the winner and so pro- prosecutors are going to try to make her out as you know a pedophile we're just we're just not going to make you out as a pedophile but we're going to go to the umpteenth degree to make you out as the most subpar human being so ever we'll watched the face of the earth and it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that we live in a world where those mm-hmm. are the choices. You know, either either they get ruined or you get ruined. But someone's going to come out of this with their life destroyed. And, and and I and I don't know that those are the rights that, that people. You know, that those are the rights that are guaranteed. I don't think that for someone to report a crime for us to tell them, well, under the constitution, your life's going to get destroyed in the courtroom. Yeah. Um, you know, but that's that's life. Um, and so that's that's pretty much a microcosm of what it was. It was brutal. It was horrific. It was traumatizing. And We won, whatever that looks like, you know, uh, let let, let me rephrase that. Uh, The jury came back with a guilty verdict, you know, whatever. However, that translates into winners and and the opposite of winners. You can you can determine for yourself. But the jury came back with a guilty verdict, which I think looking at the microcosm of the situation is is a best case scenario for that. And I think about quite a bit. I think about the fact that all all I was really hoping for out of this entire situation was an apology.
1: Yeah. Uh, Oh, gosh, I hear that so much.
0: You know, and uh, it, it's interesting. My abuser at this point is is doing 25 to life at the Utah State Prison, and they're 72 years old. And, you know, we can all kind of deduce what that means. And yeah. at, at the very beginning of the process, there was a plea deal that was offered to her that she would, you know, take one count, plead guilty. And I would go to sentencing and ask the judge to, to give her the minimum, which was three years. And I think about the fact that three years have passed since then. This could be behind us for everybody. Mm-hmm. This could be in the past. And it's not. And it's not, and that's not on me. That's not on me, and that's not on the prosecutor, and it's not on the state, and it's not on the cops. It's only on one person, and you know that apology is still, still forthcoming. Hopefully, it hasn't hasn't been delivered yet, and that's where we are.
1: It's such an important message about what that process looks like and feels like, and I speak a lot about how you know in, in Indiana, especially or specifically, I can speak to it, you know, it's constitutionally prescribed that all victims are survivors are treated with respect and dignity, but there's one caveat at the end. It's even, they even encoded it in the um, Indiana code. And there's all of these, you know, beautiful things that are talked about how you have to treat victims with respect. But at the end of it, it says, unless it infringes upon the rights of the defendant. And so many defense attorneys take that very loosely and, and, and think that that means that, you know, they attack, they do, they attack the um, person who's been abused. And it makes that person feel like and it, I think in reality is feel like they're on trial, you know, that they're the one um, and and that just like, it just exacerbates everything that you've already been through. And it's so traumatizing. And I know, you know, she was convicted. It's like, great. You know, like she was found guilty for what she's done. But three weeks later, you found yourself in the emergency room, right? Like you had a severe panic attack about what had gone through. And again, you got to have that conversation with yourself. You're like, well, this doesn't make sense. It's quote over, you know, like I should feel good now. And I think that you got the right doctor at the right time who said, that's not how this works. Yeah.
0: You know, I remember you sitting there in in, in the in the bed in the er and the the cardiologist guy i thought like many people who have had intense panic attacks i thought i was having a heart attack i thought this was you know this this was the end and the nice cardiologist on call comes in and looks at me and he looks at my file and he says can i ask you a question so he says have i seen your picture of the paper recently and i i understood what he meant with that question like and i said yes and he says i mean i'll be honest I, I'm not terribly surprised that you're here. You know, you're having you're having a panic attack. And he and said, frankly, I'm surprised it's taken you this long. This is three weeks after trial. I remember walking into the hospital thinking to myself, could anybody have predicted this? You know, at some point, the prosecutor, you know, somebody would have been like, by the way, like, you know, you're going to go through this and you're going to do the whole thing. And there's a good chance you'll probably suffer for it afterwards. And, and assuming that's the case, you know, I know people will read my story and, and potential victims will read my story and be like, okay, well, I'll sign up for this. And then I'll just, you know, make sure I have a car on standby waiting to take me to the local ER for when I have the inevitable panic attack. Are we really doing this? Are we really signing people up? Are we sending off sheep to slaughter, you know, for this environment where we're, we're almost guaranteeing that, you know, you'll do the thing, you'll testify, you'll, you'll tell your story, you'll find your voice, get a guilty verdict, you'll find justice, all of these buzzwords. And likely, by hook or by crook, Weeks later, days later, months later, you'll be paying for it in in a very personal, intense way. If we know that, what are we doing? Mm. What are we doing here? Right? Like, if we know that information to be true, what sort of society can we claim to live where that is expected and and is happening on the right? And I don't have a good answer to that question. I do not have a good answer to that question. I think it's a question that I'm going to keep on asking, but I, Mm. I, I, I don't know what to say to answer to that.
1: I've been doing this for for a long time, and I don't have the answer either. If that tells you anything, so we certainly have a lot of work to do. But well, I think that, go, yeah. <laughs> that's one of the major, you know, takeaways. And I know that you have several that are important in the message that you are disseminating to the world. And one of them that it is a lifelong journey. Your life is never the same. It's never over. And I think that there are times when it's you know maybe better or easier to deal with, or maybe it's lying a little bit dormant. But there are things that will pop up throughout life, and truly you're just, a survivor is never the same after that has happened to them.
0: I I would say that was the biggest adjustment that I had to lean into in in early therapy. And I would say that it's the most constant part of the journey is that this is going to go on forever. Forever is a scary term. I personally, I believe that the sooner you come to terms with that, in all of its inevitability, the better off you're going to be. It's going to go on for a very long time. It's, It's going to be something you're going to grapple with every single morning that you wake up. And I think at some point you don't fight that anymore. And I think at a certain point, you learn to find meaning and purpose for your life in ways that you hadn't anticipated. You know, I, I'm okay with this being my journey forever and ever. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and not only that, there's there's something there for me. There's, there's a fight for me in, in all of this that, that I'm content with, that I find happiness and purpose in as well. For me, that's a large part of it. For me, I think being in that place of acceptance and, and grace with myself is, is key to the entire giving journey.
1: Yeah, I think that there's some level of peace when you get to that point of acceptance. It's still can be difficult, but it's such an important part of the journey. I know another thing that you've talked about is, and we've talked about a little bit today, the importance of bringing the issue into the light, having an open dialogue and making sure that the children are educated. Again, not asking anyone to talk about sex with their kids. I, I, would, I, I, would ne- I know you would never do that, but I would never ask anyone to do that. But just making sure that people understand that in order to protect your kids, they do have to have some level of education about what's okay and what's not okay when it comes to their own bodies.
0: Absolutely. We're doing this over video, and you see behind me the uh, the article that ran in the local paper where I first told my story. It's up there on my wall. And I've got a seven and a half year old and he can read. And you know, the, the ability to assume a certain position of ignorance and, and and hope he wouldn't figure out was not an option for me and my wife at a very young age for him. And we leaned into it. We absolutely leaned into it. There was just the sweetest episode that happened in my house a couple of weeks ago. Um, someone came over to talk, a survivor here in the community. And I was like in the kitchen, getting them a glass of water. And my son kind of walks by and, and he says, hi, you know, someone, stranger sitting in the dining room says, hello. And he says, what's your name? What are you doing here? And so the person says, I'm here to speak to your dad. So he says, well, what about, so they said, oh, just something personal. So he goes over to them and says, it's about sexual abuse you'll be okay <laughs> like, acts him head and he walks off and i thought that was i thought that was adorable i thought that, that was, is adorable you know, and beautiful I thought, I thought that was so sweet like you know in his mind it's 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 not this huge scary taboo topic it happened it happened to his dad it happens to people up and down all over the place and that's fine that's that's okay you'll be okay he's okay Um, and, and I think, you know, if if I had to pick a way to go about this, that's, that's how I would want to go about it. I think that's, you know, that for me is, is the path forward.
1: It sounds like a beautiful caring child. And I think that that is a great example personified of the next thing I was going to talk about, which you have talked about a lot, and that's the importance of hope. And I think that is definitely hope right there because you've got hope in the future for understanding and being able to act accordingly. But I think that that hope has also led you to the activism that you have really kind of leaned into since this all happened. I know that you've had lots and lots of people within your own religious community disclose to you, and you have reached out to the National Children's Alliance, established a partnership with them. I thought it was really cool how you were trying to work with them to figure out how to deal with this issue within your community because you know the, the, for people who don't know the national children's alliance is responsible for all the child advocacy centers throughout the country and that's where trained individuals called forensic interviewers interview children who um, have been sexually abused To try to you know get the facts out in a non-leading manner, and so I think it's really neat that you have you know taken the issue and tried to figure out how to tailor it to your own community to make sure that those kids are protected and that they feel safe enough and that there's a way that the whole whole community feels safe enough for the kids to be able to disclose what's going on.
0: I would agree, and I I think that I appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that, and I think that what it boils down to is we talked earlier about finding meaning and purpose. And you know, for me, I think that the struggle of the journey at such an early age was. The split in the story for me. This can't be my life. I want to be a rabbi. I want to do good things. I want to, you know, serve a community. I I can't be bothered with this stuff. And and I think at a certain point, you find a way to really bring those two together. You know, I, I want to do good things. I want to serve my community. This is not an impediment from that. I can serve my community and do good things in this realm, in this space, while being completely leaned into the fact that this is my journey. This is my reality. And I can, I can help people in that way. And I think that the sooner that you lean into that, the better off you are.
1: I couldn't agree more, but it does take a lot of courage. So I don't want you to be too humble about that. And (laughs) another effort I know that you are really involved in is reforming the criminal justice system in the context of how victims are treated and i know you're even going to be in that's what you're coming for to indiana for i think i believe that you're talking to prosecutors and emphasizing the importance of trauma-informed care training for everyone who's involved in the system
0: absolutely so one of the things that i'm very grateful for is to work with law enforcement prosecutors to talk about you know the wins i think of my story uh you know i think far too often a lot of professionals in the space find themselves being lectured to about the losses in the industry. You know, here's how this case went wrong. Here's how we mistreated this person. Here's a complaint from this individual or this segment of society. And I like talking to people who serve in that in that space about the wins of my story as it pertains to reform. I, uh, you know, I I am not the warmest and fuzziest friend of the defense bar here in Salt Lake City, and <laughs> I you know, have made it very clear that I think that what happened at my trial. Is wrong and it's inexcusable, and I'm not looking for apologies or handouts. I want that acknowledgement, so that it doesn't happen to the next person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I went to trial, I had a family sitting in the courtroom, and I had support and I had love, and I was able to deal with a lot of the adversity that I found in the courtroom through my support system. And mm-hmm. I know that there's a good chance the next person that goes through that won't have mm-hmm. that
1: support system. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, you know, I think you know you you put it in, in such a concise, fashion, honesty, you said, you know, we, we all talk about victims' rights and, you know, it's kumbaya and it's unicorns and it's rainbows. And then there's that little line at the bottom that it says, unless, unless it messes with the sacred rights of a defendant, then it all goes out the window. And, then, you know, I, and I'd like to find a way where we can prioritize victims' rights a little bit more. And I, I think, you know, the best, the, the best compliment that I was given, and it wasn't intended to be a compliment is several months ago, someone, you know, I was talking to someone on the other side of the aisle about this and they said, you know, I got to be honest with you. When you talk about this, you come off as as being very personal. It seems like it's, it's very personal for you. You're very, you know, you know, maybe, maybe too personal. And I said, you know, you're a defense attorney, and and you are advocating for defense attorneys' rights. If victims aren't going to take this issue personally how can we expect change to happen? Who, who's going to take up that cause for us? Right. So You are darn right. It is personal. It is absolutely personal. And being told that and, and, you know, kind of having that label slapped around is the single greatest compliment anybody could pay me. That's awesome. I, so it is personal.
1: It is. I mean, it's, I, I'm not sure anything could get any more personal, you know, I think I could talk to you all day about this, but I know that we are getting up against the wall on time. So is there anything else that you want to say that you think could be helpful for survivors or professionals that work within the field of sexual abuse or even loved ones of survivors?
0: I think the point that I would underscore the most is that it's, it's not a one size fits all journey. You know, everyone, everyone finds their voice in their own way. Everyone grows in their own way in this, in this sense. And I, you know, I encourage everyone to really find, find their path find the, the way to heal through this that works for you and be aware of the fact that it is individual and it is customized and it is made mm. and it is personal. And the day will come. The day will come when that, when that work is worth it and keep fighting because I, I think it's definitely an outcome worth waiting for.
1: Oh gosh, I love that. Thank you. And we end every show with the same three questions. We ask every guest the same three questions. Question one, what does courage mean to you?
0: What courage means to me might be something which it doesn't mean to anybody else. And I think in the space of people wanting to be courageous, we often try to be courageous like somebody else, as somebody else has been courageous. And I think the greatest measure of courage is is doing it in a way that it is uniquely personal and it's uniquely customized to you and to your situation and your needs. I think that is being courageous in a way that is uniquely you is true courage.
1: That's really poignant. And question two, what is the best piece of advice you have ever received?
0: Don't take yourself too seriously. <laughs> I uh, think
1: we all could probably. Yeah, like hear that's that a little
0: more. I, I, I had something which I was taught at a young age and I profoundly, profoundly
1: believe in. <laughs> and Certainly some people need to hear that more yeah. than others probably, but we all do. And then the last question, what is one question that you wish more people would ask you?
0: That's a really good question. I think the one question I hope, I wish more people would ask is how can I help? I, I think that we think about initiatives like child sexual abuse as as global and societal and systemic, and it is right. It is all of those things. And I think at the same time we undervalue and we underestimate the 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 impact that single individuals can have in this space, mm. forming their family, informing their community, informing their faith group, informing their kids' soccer team, whatever it is. I think that the value of people getting involved in this on a personal level has such an impact. And I think more people, I wish more people would would think about it that way.
1: That's really, that's really cool. And I completely agree. And that's, that's a good one. You know, Rabbi, I I thank you so, so much for being here today. And I have to warn you, you're probably not going to be able to get rid of me now. You're going to hear from me. Famous last words, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I can almost guarantee you that I'm going to ask you to come on again because I I would love to get deeper into some of those reform movements that you're working on because I think it's so important, something that people need to hear. But you know, I I'm I'm inspired by your journey and your resolve and your courage, and I thank you for what you're doing for survivors every day. Thank you so much.
0: I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.
1: Oh, pleasure is all mine. And as always, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com, and we will see you next time.